Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 are all about Babylon. Now I need to say a few words by way of introduction when we talk about Babylon. Because Babylon was many things in the Old Testament. It was, of course, uh, the area around an important city, the city of Babel. This was the center of human civilization after the flood. We remember the story in the Old Testament of the Tower of Babel and how a man named Nimrod was the one who sort of organized humankind in a rebellion against God building the Tower of Babel in direct defiance of the Lord. Then many uh, centuries later, one of the most notable empires of the world was the Empire of Babylon. We find this under the glory of Nebuchadnezzar as it's displayed in the book of Daniel and in other biblical passages. So you have the city of Babel, you have the Empire of Babylon, and then you finally you have the place that was the place where... Uh, Israel was exiled to when the southern kingdom of Judah fell. They were conquered by the Babylonians. Now what's important to remember about this is that Babylon is mentioned 287 times in scriptures. It's mentioned more than any other city in the scriptures other than Jerusalem. Now Babylon was, of course, a literal city on the literal Euphrates River. And again, Genesis chapter 11 shows us that Babylon was the seed of civilization after the flood that in an organized way expressed its hostility towards God. But to those familiar with the Old Testament, Babylon wasn't just the city of the Tower of Babel. It wasn't just the center of the Babylonian Empire. It wasn't just the uh, government seat of the empire that conquered Judah. It was associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. As much as anything, Babylon expressed what the world was all about. In the New Testament, we have many passages speaking to us about the danger of the world. Uh, In 1 John, he speaks about loving not the world and having our heart protected against worldly influences. You know, there's a spirit of the age during every time in every culture that wants to lead us away from God. Friends, if you follow the flow of our culture and the flow of our society, is that going to lead you closer to God or further from Him? Absolutely, it'll lead you further from God. Well, one way of expressing this idea of of Mankind informally organized in this common rebellion against God was a way of describing it in a sense of a symbol of Babylon. It's as if, if you want to speak in these symbolic terms, Jerusalem is the city of God's people, Babylon is the city of the world. And so the concept of Babylon is far greater than Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. The concept of Babylon is far greater than the reign of the Antichrist. Babylon was present in the day that John the Apostle wrote. In that day, it was typified most clearly by Rome and the Roman Empire. It was the one that drove the world culture at that time. And in our own day and throughout history, Babylon has been present as the world system. But this is what we need to remember when we come to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. That under the Antichrist, in the last days before the return of Jesus Christ, Babylon, in both its religious aspect and its commercial aspect, will hold authority over the earth like it never has before. If you think that the rebellious world influence, uh, the rebellious influence of common humanity is strong in the world today, It's going to be much, much stronger during the time of the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist holds sway over the world. So here we have in Revelation chapter 17 the description and the fall of what is called religious Babylon. Chapter 18 will speak to us about the nature and the fall of commercial Babylon. It's interesting, the world system in many different ways has two different aspects. There's a spiritual aspect to the world system, but there's also a commercial 
or a material aspect to the world system. Revelation 17 deals with the religious aspect. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now again, John is assured at the very outset of this vision, he hasn't even seen this image that the angel says he will show him to him, but the angel describes the image to John before he even sees it. And in the way that the angel describes it, he assures John and us that the judgment of that world system is accomplished already ahead of time. You see what he says there in verse 1. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. There's never any doubt regarding the fate, regarding the ultimate failure of Babylon. Now friends, as a religious system, Babylon came into being long before Christianity. But it's fascinating to note from historical study how the religion of Babylon was a satanic imitation prophecy of Christianity to come. In other words, it anticipated in a false way the coming of Christianity. According to religious history and legend, Babylonian religion was founded by the wife of this great ruler of the world in the days of the Tower of Babel known as Nimrod. By the way, Nimrod was a great-grandson of Noah. We're not talking about being that far removed. And the wife of Nimrod was named Semiramis. She was a high priestess of idol worship, and she gave birth to a son who she claimed was conceived miraculously. The son's name was Tammuz, and he was considered a savior. And many ancient artifacts remain with the familiar motif of the mother Semiramis holding the savior infant Tammuz. And these predate Christianity by centuries. By the way, it was also said that Tammuz was killed by a wild beast and then miraculously brought back to life. By the way, Baal was the local Canaanite name for the Babylonian deity Tammuz. So friends, the Bible makes specific mention of many of these features of the classic religion of Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, mentions, uh, Ezekiel comes out against, I should say, he protests against the ceremony of weeping for Tammuz. And Jeremiah mentions the heathen practice of making special bread cakes for the queen of heaven and offering incense to the queen of heaven. That's in Jeremiah 7 and in Jeremiah 44. But here we see the great harlot, first of all, in her authority. Look at it here, verse 1. It says, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Here, Babylon, as it says, sits on many waters. That is, she presides over many nations. She covers a lot of territory. She covers much of the earth. She has a universal, international character. A lot of people can't resist identifying this great harlot with some particular religious system. And I'll just be flat out straight with you. When you read most of the books on the book of Revelation, when you read most of the commentators, many of them are agreed that there's no doubt in their mind who this great harlot represents. It's those Catholics. That's what they would say. They would say, the great harlot, well, how could it be anything else? Look at all the associations. It has to be Roman Catholicism. But friends, if you take a look at what the Bible says, you have to see that what's spoken of here is not Roman Catholicism per se. It's much bigger than that. This great harlot doesn't preside over just one religious group, over just one area of faith or belief. She sits over many waters. And if you notice, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, verse 2, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. This is something all over the earth, not localized, not, not uh, confided to one region or one nation or even one particular kind of faith. This harlot has an international, universal character. You see, this is a unification of all false idolatrous religion. And friends, you can find false idolatrous religion within the Roman Catholic Church. 
You can also find it within many Protestant churches. And you can find it among other smorgasbord of the religions of the world. This great harlot described for us in Revelation chapter 17 is much bigger than any one denomination. This woman pictures false religion that will dominate the world in the tribulation period. Again, I would stress that even though many people like to identify this great harlot with the Roman Catholic Church, false religion is not limited to any one church. Yes, the Roman Catholic Church is involved, but friends, so, so are many Protestant churches. Should we just take this point to remind ourselves once again that it does not matter what church a person attends as far as the state of their soul before God. What matters is their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Go ahead. Stand at the tribunal of God on the day of judgment and show them your Calvary Chapel bumper sticker. Show them the T-shirt. Show them the license plate frame. It'll get you nowhere. Friends, but if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what makes the difference. And we would hope that our church is a church that facilitates people's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't make you have one. We can't make you grow in the Lord. Our hope is to provide an environment, to help provide the tools. But the bottom line is you don't get to heaven by the church you attend. You get to heaven by a personal relationship of trust and commitment with Jesus Christ. If you notice here too, it says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Now, that's probably speaking in the idea of religious fornication. Sexual immorality, when it's applied spiritually, is oftentimes in the Bible, in the Old and in the New Testament, it's a symbol of idolatry. And you can see how that symbol would come about. Because the, the picture is presented to us very often in the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that God's people are His bride. They are His wife, or they are His engaged spouse. Therefore, if you go and worship another god, it's like you're committing adultery on God. And that's why it calls it fornication. She's leading the kings of the earth into idolatry. And then if you notice as well, it says in verse 2, And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Religious Babylon intoxicates kings, intoxicate the people. You know, Karl Marx was partly right when he said religion is the opiate of the masses. You see, he was partly right because empty religion is the opiate of the masses. This hollow shell of true faith, it is something that people get drunk on. No, not not true spirituality, not a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Take a look here, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you remember, in the first two verses, the angel said, I'm going to show you this. Now he shows it to John. And what John sees is an image. It's a symbolic representation. You know, we always wonder what it must have looked like exactly to John's eye when he saw it. You know, maybe it would have looked to him what we would call, well, it looked like a computer animation or, a, you know, or a, you know, some kind of figure. Or maybe it looked like a movie in front of his eyes. We don't know for sure. It, you could speculate endlessly on that. But whatever it was, the image that he had in front of his eyes, in his mind, was, look at it again, verse 3, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. John has been carried away into the wilderness. And the desolate nature of the wilderness is an appropriate setting for this vision of judgment that he will have. 
And then he sees in the midst of this wilderness a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The harlot rides the same beast that John saw back in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. How do we know? Well, because back then it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman rides the Antichrist and his dictatorship. It looks like she's in control. It looks like she's being carried by the beast. Her position of riding the beast indicates, on the one hand, that she's supported by the political power of the Antichrist, but on the other hand, she appears to be in a dominant role. And at least outwardly, it looks like she's holding the reins on the beast. But if you notice, when God looks at this beast, what does he see? He sees blasphemy and the dragon there and the beast. It's all clearly seen from God's perspective. To the people of the earth, she's going to look pretty spectacular. Look, it says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. I mean, this woman looks like she has it all, right? She has luxury. That's purple and gold and precious stones. She has the the emblems of government. Scarlet was a color worn by governmental authorities. And so look at her. I mean, there she is. She's all decked out. Beautiful clothes, beautiful jewelry. Everybody looks in the, at this woman in the world and they go, Oh my, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it glorious? Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? But look what's in that golden cup that she holds out. In the golden cup, it's full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Friends, do you see this? This woman is clothed in the colors of splendor and magnificence. The dyes used to make purple and scarlet were very expensive, and only the rich could afford them. She's rich. She's wealthy. She's, she has a great power. She's riding the beast. Purple and scarlet were the colors of rulers, whether they were economic rulers or political rulers. And this is a woman in authority. This is a woman who holds the reins of spiritual power, and everybody looks at her and admires her. And then they drink that cup of the... As it says there in verse 4, the golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now the true nature of this woman is revealed by her identifying headband. It says, on her forehead a name was written, and the name on her forehead identifies her in more ways than one. Did you know that back in the days that John wrote, Roman prostitutes frequently wore a headband with their name engraved upon it? I guess it was so that when you saw them in the street, you could call them by their first name. Maybe like a name tag, you know, hello, my name is, and that was the customary garb for a prostitute in the days of Rome. Well, this woman identifies herself as a harlot in spite of all of her glamour. She's nothing but a prostitute. And she presents herself out here as a woman representing false religion representing idolatrous religion. And she has her name up on her forehead there, Mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, it's not literal Babylon, but spiritual or mystery Babylon. It's spiritual representation. And it's the mother or the source of all idolatry or abominations and all spiritual adultery. Out from this whore, if you will, this harlot, comes all spiritual idolatry. Friends, might I remind you, if she is the mother of all idolatry, then it's much larger than any one branch of any one religious institution. She is the embodiment of Satan's own ecclesiastical movement. She's the religion of the world system. Friends, the Bible makes it very, very clear that in the very last days, after the church has been removed from the earth, and caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. And God deals with what's left with the remnant upon the earth. Once that faithful church of the Lord has been removed, then friends, there's going to come upon the earth a deception, an attack, something that you've never been able to to think of up to that point, and there's going to be uniting of false religion all over the world. Now, we see it, in ecclesiastical movements today. You see hints of it. 
Friends, in the days of the Antichrist, when he holds his power over the earth, not only is there going to be one world politically, not only is there going to be one world economically, but it's going to be one world religiously. And there will be one faith, the faith of the Antichrist. And it'll look to everybody like the Antichrist is under the control of that faith. You know, he will be a faithful worshiper of it. That's why it says that a woman rides the beast. Friends, I want you to see that the groundwork is being laid for that one world faith right now in a powerful and stunning way. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but let me just say how the philosophical groundwork for that one world religion is being laid. Did you know how most people look at religious faith today? Most people, at least in Western culture, look at it with this philosophy. They say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe, as long as you're sincere. Now, with that kind of thinking, isn't that the perfect groundwork, philosophically, to bring the world together in a false, idolatrous, one-world religion? Our world, with its, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe philosophy, it's ripe for the harlot's seductions. And by the way, this casual disregard for the truth cripples the church today. As much as anywhere, the church needs to stand up and say, this is the truth of God. Here it is. We're not going to be distracted with this, that, or the other thing. We're going to present the truth of God. Now, if you want to see the, the true nature of this harlot, I mean, she looks like it's just kind of harmless religion, right? Maybe somebody else's faith. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and everything's great. Well, in one sense, that's fine, but that's not what this harlot believes, because look at it in verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You get the point there? She not only persecutes, she revels in the persecution of the godly as a drunk revels in wine. It gets her high. The followers of this one world religion will feel never better as when they're eliminating those pesky Christians. Now, I'm not talking about Christians who are left behind after the rapture. All true followers of Jesus Christ will be taken when Jesus catches away the church. But the Bible tells us that many will come to faith and trust in Jesus, even in the horrendously difficult days of the Great Tribulation. And those people will be persecuted by this great harlot, will be persecuted by this one world religion. Because if there's one thing that this one world religion will not be able to stand, it's men and women standing up saying, Jesus is the only way. Well, no, you see, we have our one world religion, and it brings together all faiths. It brings together this faith and that faith and the other thing. See, here's the Hindu, and here's the, the follower of Islam, and, and here's the, well, look, there's many Christians in our group, too. And look, there's all these different, we're all in the same group. Isn't it wonderful? And the Christian says, no, I'm not of you. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and him alone. And that Christian will be persecuted and martyred by the followers of this one world religion. And they will love it when they do it to the Christians. You know what's amazing about this? Look at the last line of verse 6. And when I saw this, or when I saw her rather, John says, I marveled with great amazement. Why is John amazed? I believe he's amazed because this is not pagan persecution of the godly. John knew that in his day. What's so amazing about that? Pagans persecuting Christians. So what? It happens. No. No, friends, this isn't pagan persecution, but religious error and persecution. This is a pseudo-church thirsty for the blood of the saints. Friends, false religion has always been the worst enemy of true religion. And it's popped up all throughout the history of the world and the history of Christianity. We should never forget that some of the most vicious persecution conducted against true Christians has been done in the name of the church. 
In the days when the Roman Catholic Queen Mary ruled England, it was known as Bloody Mary for good reason. Some 288 Christians were burnt at the stake for their stand for Christian truth between 1555 and 1558 in England. A three-year period. 288 Christians burned at the stake. The first of these martyrs was a man named John Rogers, who as he stood chained to a stake and as the fire rose up around him, up to his legs and his shoulders. He rubbed his hands in the flames as if he was washing his hands in cold water, and then he lifted up his hands to the heavens and held them high until he was completely consumed by the fire. That barbarity was committed in the name of religion, in the name of the church. But Rogers went to the stake with such calm dignity and trust in Jesus Christ that the French ambassador wrote back home to his king. He said as he watched this man die his death, it said he went as if he was walking to his wedding. His courage was so evident that the huge crowd burst into applause when they saw him walking to the stake. Now, friends, that's just one example. You could cite numerous examples of Protestants or Roman Catholics or this religion or that religion persecuting other people in the name of religion. This is going to be the ultimate example of it in the last days under this one world religion. Well, now with verse 7, John's going to gain some understanding on this image that he sees. Verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. In other words, the angel tells John, I'm going to explain this to you. I want you to notice here, it says that that, that John is not going to just hear the explanation about the woman, but of the beast also. Right? Verse 7 says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. So take a look here now, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is, excuse me, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose name are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Friends, I want you to see that this clearly connects the beast here with the beast of Revelation chapter 13. Because that beast is clearly described in the same terms. Turn back to Revelation chapter 13. And take a look here. It says, verse 2, Now the beast I saw, which was like a leopard... His feet were like the feet of a bear, and the mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? In other words, this beast is one who has had an assassination attempt or some kind of near-death experience, but has come back from it. And as he comes back, he's even more uh, powerful and having more authority than ever. That's the beast that was and is not and yet is. It refers to the seeming resurrection of this beast. But if you notice again now in verse 9, now he's going to associate something else. He says, here is the mind, we're back in Revelation 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now this sends the commentators into a tizzy. Because many people like to associate the seven mountains with Rome and the papacy. Rome, throughout history, has been well known in writings of pagans and many other people, as the city on seven hills. And they can name for you the seven hills that Rome is supposedly founded upon. And so when they see this 
a city represented or whatever by seven mountains. They say, well, look, that, that seals it right there. But there's some problems with this. First of all, the Greek word means mountains, not hills. I mean, there is a Greek word for hills. It didn't use it. And the city of Rome is built on seven hills, but it's not built on seven mountains. But again, many commentators, especially those who see all of Revelation as fulfilled in history, regard the seven mountains as an irrefutable connection with Rome. But what's interesting is if you study the Bible, especially if you study the Old Testament prophecies, oftentimes mountains are used as images or representations of governments, as empires. And the city of Rome, again, is not built on hills, is not built on mountains, but on hills. It's probably much better to see the seven mountains as describing the seven kings and kingdoms described in Revelation 17.10. Now, many people find the connection between religious Babylon and Roman Catholicism irresistible. People who are out to, to bash the Roman Catholic Church, they just salivate at this chapter. But it's flawed. Their interpretive approach is flawed in this sense, that there's no doubt that Roman Catholicism will incorporate, a, excuse me, there's no doubt that religious Babylon, this end times, one world faith, there's no doubt that it will incorporate a strong Roman Catholic element. But let's remind ourselves, it will be much bigger than Roman Catholicism. It'll be apostate Roman Catholicism, apostate Protestantism, apostate uh, any other faith. But friends, it is interesting to see recent movements and indications within Roman Catholicism that show it to be something that is very friendly to one world religions. I find Pope John Paul II a fascinating figure. He's had an amazing impact on human history. He played a very significant role behind the scenes in the fall of the uh, communist governments in the 1980s and early 90s. Uh, he, he's a remarkable man politically and socially, and in many ways he's tried to make a stand for traditional Roman Catholicism in the midst of a, of a world that wants to move away from it as rapidly as possible. But there's another side to Pope John Paul II's movements and, and actions that I have to say just scratches my head because it seems to contradict everything he's done to seem to strengthen traditional Roman Catholicism. It's what I consider as bizarre involvement with and approval of other anti-Christian religions. I mean, not very long ago, in addressing a prayer gathering of Christians, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and others, Pope John Paul II told the participants that their efforts, again, the efforts of the whole common group, he said that they were unleashing profound spiritual energies into the world and bringing about a new climate of peace. And the Pope pledged at that meeting that the Catholic Church intends to share in and promote such ecumenical and interreligious cooperation. The magazine The Catholic Review commentated on this, and this is what they said. They said the unity of religion promoted by the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, and approved by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion which both Buddha and Christ preach so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from senseless destruction and lead us toward the light in which we all believe. I scratch my head when I read things like that. You know, the Dalai Lama um, may see come to Jesus Christ someday, but until that day, he's not walking toward the light that the Bible indicates. And so it's fascinating to read of these efforts to bring a common ground between world religions. Now, if somebody wants to talk about a common ground between the world religions in terms of mutual respect and tolerance, you can put me at the front of that list. I am all for the right for the, the Islamic person to practice Islam 
and the Jewish person to practice their Judaism and the Buddhist to practice their Buddhism. Friends, we as Christians do not intend or desire in any way to outlaw other religions. That's the furthest thing from our conception. No, 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 no. We're all for religious tolerance. We're all for respecting other people's beliefs. But we're also all for the belief to preach the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And you can have every right to believe your own religion because God gives you the right to be wrong. But you're wrong. You can practice it, but you're wrong. And we will tell you you're wrong, not based on our own opinions, but based on what the Bible says. Verse 10. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Well, I have to confess to you that this is one of the more difficult verses in the book of Revelation. I don't know exactly what John is talking about here. Oh, you can read a lot of different explanations. Some people explain these seven kings... Five past, one present, and one to come in terms of the Roman emperors in John's day. But when you chart it out, it just doesn't work out. It doesn't make any sense. The kings could be representative of empires. That's probably the best solution. I mean, five have fallen could refer to the five world empires that went before John's day. You know, there were five significant world empires before John's day. Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And then there was one world empire in John's day, Rome. And there is one world empire to come. And that's the world empire that this great harlot sits upon. But when this one comes, if you notice, it says, verse 10, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. This seventh will quickly be taken over by eighth and will become the state of the Antichrist. You see, what it seems to be is that the Antichrist will not necessarily found this one world government or religion. He may just take it over very quickly. He may take it over as it already exists. Friends, there's problems with this. This is just a tough verse. We can't really say exactly we know everything that we mean. But I tell you, I'm sure that someday when we're up in heaven and reading through the book of Revelation, we've seen how God's worked the whole thing out, we'll say, that, that was it. Look at it all right there. Friends, I do think we have to say that there are certainly some things in prophecy, more than perhaps we want to admit, that we're only going to really clearly understand after it's done. But God gives us enough to, to draw at least some conclusions ahead of time. Verse 11. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Again, that's the Antichrist. So he's the eighth. He quickly takes over this final world kingdom. It seems to be the meaning from verse 10. And, but he will quickly go to perdition. That's ultimate destruction. Now here, verse 12 through 15. It says, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. You see what I said before, how this harlot sits over peoples and nations and multitudes and tongues. It's not one region or even one denomination. It's a global, universal church, far broader than any one denomination. So we have a reference here to this ten-nation confederation that we've had spoken up before in the book of Revelation. And those ten kings have received no kingdom as of yet, but they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. There will be ten nations which rally around and provide the basic political support for the Antichrist and his rulership and domination over the world. And these ten nations... Many people have seen the European economic community as the potential fulfillment of this. 
Now, right now, there's more than 10 nations in the European economic community, but we have no idea of how it's going to be shuffled around or, or reconstituted. But friends, there's little doubt of the credentials of the European economic community to claim itself as a successor to the ancient Roman Empire. The EEC started in 1957 when six European nations met to talk about combining their nuclear, coal, and other economic resources. They met together in Rome. And their agreement together was called the Treaty of Rome. And the EEC at the very beginning was called the Club of Rome. All tied back to this idea of being an heir to the Roman Empire. In many places in Europe, the EEC flag is just as prominent as any national flag. It's that dark blue flag with the circle of golden stars upon it. You know, it's a spiritual dynamic of things. It's no accident that in some of the euro-dollar coins, you know, there's having their own currency that will be accepted all over Europe. On some of the euro-dollar coins, on the back of them, is a depiction of a woman riding a multi-headed beast. I don't think they intended to take it from the pages of Revelation. I think Satan just can't resist playing his hand sometime. Tipping his hand, showing his cards. I found a fascinating statement from a Greek commentator known as Dean Alford. He wrote in the year 1866, talking about this one-day confederation of European nations. 1866, 130 years ago, he wrote this. He said, In the precise number and form here indicated, they have not yet arisen. What changes in Europe may bring them into the required tale and form, it's not for us to say. Isn't that interesting? 130 years ago, he said, it's going to happen. We can see it forming. It will happen, friends. And this confederation of nations will emerge as an heir to the ancient Roman Empire. Now, if you want to see what kind of support these nations give to the Antichrist, it says, verse 13, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, they will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. I love it. Every time it starts to get a little bit too dark, a little too unbearable, it's like, oh man, Antichrist, beast. John can't resist just throwing in there. Let's remember the ultimate triumph. Let's remember something, friends. This world system is going down. It is. It's not going to last. And isn't it tragic that so many Christians live their life after the thinking and the goals and the aspirations and the fashions and everything of this world when it's going down? You're pinning your money on a loser. you pick up the morning newspaper tomorrow. You open it up and you look at the date. And the date on it is for one month from today. It's like one of those weird TV shows where they can't think of anything original so they have to introduce a phony plot device like that. The newspaper from a month from now. You open it up and you say, well, I want to look at the business section. You open up that newspaper from a month from now And you read the business section, and it says, the stock of XYZ Corporation is going to plummet like a rock. It's going to be worth next to nothing. And it describes its fall. You see, good heavens, I own a thousand shares of XYZ stock. And and on this day, a month from today, it's going to be worth nothing. It's going to go down, and it's going to have no value at all. Friends, How stupid are you if you hold on to XYZ stock? You know it's going down. You you know its value is going to just like, oh yeah, and you know what? In that month, oh, it may go sky high. But you know in 30 days from now, it's through the the, uh, basement. It's that low. Friends, you see? You see where the stock of the world is going? It's going down. And how foolish for us to invest in it. I find interesting in this, in that the interpretation that John has been given so far focused more on the beast than on the harlot. And this is why. Take a look here at verse 16. 
And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The harlot's going to be judged. And by what? By the very beast that she rode. This violence probably takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Here, apostate religion discovers the true nature of the beast. Did you know that ultimately the Antichrist will not tolerate any worship except of himself? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 describes the Antichrist, and it describes him as the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. At the midpoint of the tribulation, it's not going to be good enough for anybody to worship anything except the Antichrist. And so he's going to turn on this false religion that at one time he supported, and he's going to do what he can to destroy it. Once his power has been consolidated, the Antichrist no longer needs the help of religious Babylon. Oh yes, that one world faith was a convenient tool when he needed to get his power together. But in the form of political tyrants from the earliest day to the present, they use and abuse religion as they please, don't they? Friends, I I don't want to sound cynical. Well, maybe I do. I don't really know. But let me just say this. It is in the nature of politicians. Perhaps not all of them act according to this nature. But it is in the nature of politicians to make phony shows of religion for their own purposes. And as soon as they don't need it for political purposes, they disregard it completely. That's what's going to happen with the Antichrist. This has always been the goal of tyrants and most politicians to use religion for their purposes and then to discard it. So isn't it funny? All this time it looked like the harlot was riding the beast. But as soon as he felt that was no longer convenient, the beast turns on the harlot, rips her up, and moves on. Then there's no pretense to any one world faith. Then it's raw, naked power that is worshipped. Of course, it's the power of the world, the power of man. And it's going down too. Verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. God has directed the judgment against religious Babylon. God will sometimes use a wicked group, here it's the ten kings, as an instrument of his judgment against another wicked group. And he says, he's given the political support of these kings of the Antichrist. In doing so, he's given the world exactly what it wants. Godless religion and godless rulers. And then John says a very sobering thing. You saw it there in verse 18. The woman which you saw, this harlot representing false religion and idolatry and this ultimate end times idolatrous religion, it's the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now in John's day, there's no doubt what that great city was. What was the city in John's day that reigned over all the kings of the earth? Well, it was Rome. If there was any personification of the world system in John's day, it was Rome. Rome was the political, economic, and religious center of the world. But friends, Babylon, in the sense of it being the world system, it has always been the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The question for Christians is, does it reign over me? Friends, really, where's your citizenship? Are you a citizen of Babylon? Now, John looked at Rome in his day and he said, you know, that's the purest representation of Babylon in my day. So John would have said, where are you a citizen of Rome or are you a citizen of heaven? You know, I wonder, I wonder what city would be identified with Babylon most readily today. Which city in the world is most readily identified with the world system? Washington? New York? How about Hollywood? Is there anything that more effectively preaches the gospel of mankind's common rebellion against God? In Hollywood. 
Sober and consider, we live right smack in the middle of it. So friends, what we have before us tonight is a serious call to say, let's take a look at the world system around us. And realize it's not our home. You know, you're citizens of a better city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, not of Babylon, either ancient or one of its modern revivals. No way, my friends. You're called to live as a citizen of the new Jerusalem. And when you see the world around you with all of its glitz, with all of its glitter, when you see the gold and the purple and the precious jewels and the golden cup and all of it, don't you let it seduce you. Remember, its stock is going down. So sell. Remove your heart from that position of cherishing the things and the ethics and the values of the world. And well, how does this happen practically? Ladies, when you take a look at the worldly image of what a woman should be on the magazine cover, as it's displayed in in the media, all different ways, When you look at the worldly ideal of what a woman should be, and when you say, I want to be that, you're buying stock in the world. Ladies, sell. Get rid of it. Look to the Word of God for your goal of what you should be as a woman. Men, when you look at at Hollywood's depiction of what a real man is all about, or or just what, what the common wisdom among men, Maybe we should call it the common ignorance among men. When you look to that to identify with who you are as a man, you're buying stock in the world. You know what? It's plummeting in value. It's going to be worth nothing. No, look to Jesus Christ. Let him be your example. Let him be your goal. Let him be your model of manhood in every way. But when we buy into the values and the ethics and the thinking of the world, we're buying stock in a world that's going to go down. So friends, let's sell and put our stock in a much better place, in the new Jerusalem, in the heavenly city. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do that. Father, that's our prayer tonight. Lord, uh, I think if we knew, each one of us, how much our thinking and our attitudes are influenced by the world. If we could see that clearly right now, probably every one of us would be deeply, deeply grieved. Lord, it's the air that we breathe, it's the water that we swim in. And Lord, just as the way I suppose a fish doesn't feel wet, Lord, a lot of times we don't even feel like we're in the world even when we're right in the middle of it. So Lord, I guess tonight, as much as anything, we ask for an awakening. Awaken our hearts, awaken our minds to know the glory of Jesus Christ and the eternal nature of the thinking and the values and the attitudes of his kingdom. Help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God, not the empire of Babylon. We pray this tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.